Good morning, church. Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning. My name is Chad Lowe. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. If you are new here, um, I do ask that you fill out the connection card. We do want to get to know you. We want to greet you personally. You can give it to the Welcome Center just outside. We have a gift for you. Um, so yeah, we'd love, to, we'd love to get to know you. Um, we hope that you have a great Tri-Village experience. We're family here, and you get to be a part of our family. Um, at Tri-Village Church, we believe that you're not just welcomed here, but that you're wanted and you're needed. You're not just welcomed, but you're wanted and needed here. And we, we really, truly believe that. We have been going through a series this summer called One Story, Jesus and Abraham, where we've been looking at the thread of the gospel throughout all of Scripture and seeing how the gospel is present in the Old Testament and the New Testament and watching about this story of Jesus and the life of Abraham specifically as we've been going through this series. So we get to see the unfolding of the gospel in the life of Abraham and I'm excited for what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be just forewarning. It's a little bit of a heavier topic, but we are going to be looking at the gospel through the life of Abraham. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 today. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. If you guys would open your Bibles to Genesis 18, turn on your Bibles, whatever way you use your Bible, um, grab it out, and uh, it'll also be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the rack in the back. Be sure to grab them before you leave. We'd love for you to have a Bible, um, but it'll also be on the screen if you don't have one. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? We stand out of reverence, out of respect, out of, um, yeah, reverence and respect for, for God's word. So I'm actually going to start reading verses 1 and 2 and then jump straight to verse 16. If you're with me, say amen. amen. All right, starting in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And then to 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great nation and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abram spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous people is five less than 50? Would you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if 40 are found there? He said, well, for the sake of 40, will you not? He, said, he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? 
He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Then the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham. He left and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at Abraham in this interaction between he and you, Lord, let us learn about your character. Let us learn about you and your heart for people, your heart against sin, your heart to reveal yourself to us. Let us learn from Adam, or not Adam, from Abraham, Lord, um, what you are showing him and how you are allowing him to see you, to see you differently, to see you in a new light, Lord. I pray that we would have eyes to see the truths that you are giving us. Lord, that we would have ears that are open to receive the truths of your gospel. And Lord, that our heart would be transformed by it. I pray that you would protect this room, protect us from distraction, protect us from anything, from any attack that would prevent us from receiving and hearing and knowing the words that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would guard the words of my mouth, that there's anything that is not from you, Lord, let it be forgotten. Lord, whatever is from you, let us, let us, for, let us remember it forever, Lord. Let whatever's come from me, let us forget it quickly because it's worthless. Let the meditations of my heart, let the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, my rock and redeemer. Praise in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we are dealing with this heavy topic, that one that at some point or another, maybe you even right now are processing. What do we do with the wrath of God? What do we do with God's judgment, his justice? How do we process when God has to enact vengeance. We know about the love of God, but is God bipolar? Like, is he a God who is on one side trigger-happy wrathful and the other side super flowery loving? You know, like, is, is he both merciful and just, or is he just kind of flipping between the two? And the bigger question that we see that Abraham is really asking is, can I trust in God's plan? Can I trust that God is good? And it's the same question that maybe you have and that I have and that we've had is, can I trust in the plans of God? And we're going to see this as Abraham has asked this question over and over again. He sees the Lord in a new light this time. And it causes him to question, can I trust in the plans of the Lord? Maybe that's your question right now. Maybe you've been wrestling with that for a while. Maybe that's something that's been weighty on you. Is, I don't know if I can trust in God's plan. Well, Good, we're going to talk about that. So hopefully you'll find some answer to that. What we're going to see is we're going to see the heart of God displayed by his characteristics, his attributes. And we're also going to see it displayed through his servant, Abraham, and how he is learning and receiving and processing the heart of God. And hopefully we too can see that and respond in love. But before I do that, I want to give some context to what's going on to lead us to this point, to Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 16. So what happens before is, well, Abraham and Sarah, their original names are Abram and Sarai, but now it's been changed. So in the chapter previous, in chapter 17, the Lord appears to Abram and finally solidifies this promise. He said over and over and over again, I am going to make you into a great nation. I am going to bless you, and I'm going to bring about for you an heir. And I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. This will be an everlasting covenant between me and you. And it was the covenant of circumcision. And so he's actually blessing. He's saying, at this point, Abraham is 99 years old, um, which is pretty old. And 
Abraham, when upon hearing this news that he is going to actually have a son with his wife, Sarah, who's 89 years old, um, he starts laughing. He's like, okay, Lord, like, figured you'd bring this about, but I didn't think it was going to be this way. Um, and so he laughs, but the Lord still confirms and says, no, I'm going to bring this everlasting covenant between you, and great kings will come up from your family, and I'm going to bless you and all the nations through you. And then also I'm going to bless your wife, Sarai, who's now going to be called Sarah, and you're going to call your child Isaac. So that's what happens in the chapter before. Their names are changed. The Lord establishes an everlasting covenant with them. And then at the beginning of 18, these three visitors show up to proclaim to Sarah the very news that he said to Abraham, that I'm going to bless you. Your name's going to be Isaac. And Sarah laughs as well, which is funny enough because Isaac means he laughs. So um, the whole child is a joke. He's a joke, you know? And, uh, and so we, we see that, uh, that he actually promises a blessing and and so chapter, um, seven, sorry, at the beginning of chapter 18, we see these three visitors show up. And what we learn is that these three visitors, two are angels and one is the Lord himself. So this is a Christophany. Um, it's a theological term. It basically says it's a, it's a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. So it's Jesus in the Old Testament. We see that the Lord has showed up, has shown up, and he is now conversing. He's physically present before Abraham and Sarah. But this is before the Gospels, so pre-incarnate um, Christophany that's happening here. And so then the last thing that we need to understand before we, we keep moving on is chapter 18 and chapter 19 are really married together. They're, they're one. So before we put in chapter divisions in the English Bible, there were no chapter divisions. It was all just one long story. And so the thread of 18 and 19 actually go together. They're, they're, um, they're, it's one continuous story going from what's happening. It's one seamless train of thought. So what we see is at the beginning of chapter 18, we have blessing. And at the end of chapter 19, we have judgment. And so we see this, this duality of God, a God both of blessing and a God of judgment. A lot of times we focus on the blessing part, but today we're focusing on judgment. Aren't you guys happy about that? We're going to focus on the judgment of God. Get ready! <laughs> so we get to focus on the judgment of God. So as we process the plans of God, can we trust it? Let's deal with and grapple with the wrath of God. We're going to look at that through three main points. We're going to look at this divine judge, um, God himself. We're going to look at an imperfect advocate in Abraham. And then we're going to look at the justly condemned. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? So the divine judge, the imperfect advocate, and the justly condemned. So going back to chapter 18 and verse 16, open up the wrong part of the Bible, we see um, this, this vision or this, this picture of the Lord. And we actually see as he's the divine judge, there's two different qualities of God that we see in here. And so we're actually going to see that God is both a teacher and a judge. He's instructing Abraham in things while also showing his, his position as judge, as divine judge over the world. So in verse 16, it says, when the men got up to leave and they looked down toward Sodom, Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household, and after him they will keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. That sounds really good. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. We're going to pause there. 
So let's unpack this, that what, we, what we learn about God. And hopefully you're going to learn some characteristics of God. God is saying to Abraham, you can trust my plan. So as first, he's showing him as a teacher. Let me teach you. Let me instruct you. Let me guide you. Let me show you who I am. And let me remind you of who you are. So he shows that he is a teacher by three things. He, tr- he wants he asks that Abraham trusts in the blessing that he has for him trust in the relationship he has with him and the direction that he is leading him in. So trust in the blessing, trust in the relationship, trust in the direction that he is going. So first, let's unpack this, this teacher, as he's showing Abraham himself, trust in the blessing. So at the beginning, it may seem kind of weird because you see the Lord pondering something. Man, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And it seems weird because is the Lord really like need to ask that? Like, what's happening? Well, this is a literary device called a soliloquy. For those of you who are more educated than I and didn't have to look that up, props. For those of you who are like me, awesome. Um, Soliloquy is basically a monologue. It's when you say something out loud, but to yourself. So what scholars have actually uh, said, what a lot of commentators agree on, is that this soliloquy, the Lord talking to himself, he's actually saying this out loud, totally intending Abraham to hear him. So it's not that the Lord is really asking a question, like he's really wondering, man, should I tell Abraham? I don't know, what should I do? But that he's revealing this question out loud, like kind of looking over, like, Abraham, you listening? Like, you got this? And so this this question, the soliloquy, is actually reaffirming and confirming the blessing that he's already told Abraham over and over and over and over and over again. Throughout the entire life of Abraham, from, from when we first meet Abraham, when the Lord interacts with him 24 years before this moment, he tells him, I'm going to bless you. And then each and every moment along the journey, remember, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so then here, he's, it's like he's saying, yeah, I, I wasn't lying. I didn't give up. I'm going to make him into a great and powerful nation. You hear that? And, uh, and so, you know, I'm going to reveal to you what I'm going to do. And so he's reaffirming this blessing. The Lord doesn't lie, and he's confirming to Abraham, I am going to bless you. And this is a foundation of trust that is preparing you for the news I'm about to give you. Preparing you for what I'm about to say. So the first is we see trust in the blessing. The second thing we see is trust in the relationship. The relationship that I have with you. See, in this, in verse 19, it starts out, for I have chosen him. For I have chosen him. That word in Hebrew is actually, for I have known him. And that might seem like, okay, that's, that's cool, like God knows you. But what this is unpacking, what this is saying is that I know Abraham deeply. That's what the Lord's saying. I know Abraham deeply. I know his makeup. I know conceptually all the things about him. I know who he is and what he likes and what he dreams and what he doesn't like. I know Abraham. But then even deeper than that, I know him intimately. See, this known is the same known between a husband and wife. It's a deep, intimate, personal relationship. I know Abraham. So trust in the relationship. I have chosen you. I know you. We have a deep, personal relationship. But not only does the Lord have a deep, personal relationship with Abraham, Abraham has a deep personal relationship with the Lord. At the very beginning, we see that he's walking with God. As these men are leaving, going about to fulfill the second part of their purpose in being with them, Abraham is walking alongside and walking with them. This is both a literal and a figurative walking. 
Abraham has been walking, has been journeying with the Lord for 24 years. He's walked into some really big messes that he's created, and we've talked about those over the last few weeks. But now we see this this 99-year-old man walking with the Lord, spending time with God, wanting to see and know and hear and learn what he has from him, trust in the relationship. But then the other thing, this is what the writer is doing. So you're seeing what God is doing. You're seeing what Abraham's doing. This is what the writer of Genesis is doing. He's actually setting apart a distinction between Abraham and between Sodom and Gomorrah. So first, we see the distinction between Abraham. So this known, it reminds us of of John chapter 10, verse 27, where the Lord says that I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They hear my voice. This is the picture that we get of Abraham, that he is the sheep who knows the voice of his shepherd. He is both known by and knows the Lord. What a beautiful picture. In contrast to Sodom and Gomorrah, who don't know, who aren't listening, who aren't walking with the Lord. We see this contrast between what righteousness and unrighteousness looks like, between walking with the Lord and walking away from the Lord looks like. This distinction that is setting up the whole rest of this story. That there's Abraham who's walking with God and Sodom and Gomorrah who is not. Cool? You tracking? Okay. So that's what we see is that trust in the blessing, trust in the relationship, and finally trust in the direction. Trust in the direction that I am leading you. So the very end of this soliloquy is the very end of this like talking and processing before he finally shares exactly what he's doing. We see that he's saying, I am instructing you so that you can instruct your child. A year from now, you're going to have a son. And you're going to teach him about the ways of the Lord. What are the ways of the Lord? What is just and what is right? You're going to learn from me in just a moment my justice and my rightness. Wow. So he is saying, I'm going to teach you so that then you can teach Isaac, who then will teach his children, which become the nation of Israel, who will then teach their children and their children and their children and their children. And here we are today, learning about the justice and the righteousness or the rightness of the Lord. So he's instructing him for the future. Trust in my direction, that I have a plan, and that this isn't all just random chance, that I'm doing this for a purpose. It's almost as if he's preparing Abraham for what's about to come. He's preparing his heart, he's preparing his mind for the bad news, the hard news, the reality of what's going to happen. Similarly, the Lord does the same thing with us. He walks alongside us, reminds us of the blessing that we have as his children, walks us through the relationship that we are, that we are children of the king, and then walks us through and says, I trust in the direction that I have for you. And then we get to this part. That's all really good. You're like, Chad, this is a great, this is, I like this, this is happy. It's going to go down. Okay, um, so now we get to the wrath of God, this divine judge, this judge who has to enact justice. So before I continue, as we look at the second part, the, the second part of this is written in kind of a weird way. We actually see it written in another way in Genesis, in Genesis 11, when the Tower of Babel is being built. It's this picture of God having to search out, kind of not knowing what's happening and going, I need to inspect something. I need to see something. I need to see what's, what's really happening here. And it also, it kind of begs the question, is God really sovereign? Like, is he in control? Like, why, why does he not know what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does he have to go and find out for himself? Like, what? But I want you to know that this is not an indictment to the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord is in complete and total control. He is completely and totally powerful. 
completely and totally present. He is completely and totally knowing. He already knows exactly what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows exactly what's going on in the heart of Abraham. He knows exactly what's going on. He doesn't need to seek it out. He already knows. And he's also not waiting for Abraham's response or for what he sees to dictate his actions. He's already made his decision. He's already set. So the sovereignty of the Lord is not in question. What's happening is the writer of Genesis is allowing us to understand characteristics of God using human, using human interaction. We see that God is patient in the way that he interacts with Abraham, that he allows Abraham to process, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. We see that the Lord is decisive, that he actually makes clear and sound judgments, and that there is a, there is a decision. He does, even though there isn't necessarily a decision-making process for the Lord because he knows, we see and get to wrestle with the fact that the Lord has made decisions. We also see that he um, is caring, that he cares for other people, he cares for Abraham, he cares for Sodom and Gomorrah, and that he's going to inspect the outcry that has come from Sodom and Gomorrah which we're going to talk about in a minute, that he cares for the people who are crying out to him. So we get to understand the Lord through human perspective in a limited way that doesn't totally, it doesn't um, indict the Lord's sovereignty. So I want, to, I want to clarify that. So now as we look at the judge, we're going to look at him as the inspector and then the pronouncer of judgment. So first the inspector. We see that he's coming, he's heard this outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah, that this crying out has come to him and he's heard it and now he has to do something about it. And you might be wondering like, Who's crying out? Like, what's, what's happening? Who is the one that's, that's praying to the Lord? I thought you said that they were pretty much wicked. Like, who's praying to God? And the crying out that a lot of commentators agree on is that this is the crying out of the victims of abuse. The crying out of the victims of mistreatment. This is the crying out of those who are being violated in this city. It's the same thing that we actually see in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, when Israel is enslaved by Egypt, and he says that I have heard the cries, the groanings of my people Israel. They have cried out to me and has reached my ears. I have heard their cry. So this inspector is going to see because he has heard the pain. He has heard the suffering. Guys, this is good news for us because I don't know what pain you have, but the Lord hears you. He sees you. And he is doing something about it. It may not be in the timing that we want, but it is just all the same. That he hears you, he knows your pain, he knows your grievances, and he is not indifferent, he is not ambivalent, he is not absent. He is coming in his timing, and his timing is perfect. We can trust him in it. The outcry to the Lord, he's the investigator. But then we also see that he's the pronouncer of judgment. This is where we start to get a little bit deeper into the wrath of God. He's the pronouncer of judgment because we see that even though it doesn't seem like in this passage that he's pronouncing judgment, it seems like he's just going to investigate. What do you mean? We know from the way that Abraham responds to the Lord's um, proclamation to him that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So even though it reads that he's going to decide what's going to happen, Abraham interprets it as definitive action. You are going to lay waste to this entire place. You are going to bring your holy wrath upon this place. He understands that. So we know that he's coming to enact his entire just holy wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah because of the way that Abraham responds in the next section, that he prays against it. You're going to destroy what? Hold on. So we see that he is the enactor of judgment. The second thing we see that we wonder from that is, so what exactly is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, what, why are they, how are they so bad? 
compared to the whole rest of the world, that they have to be uh, the, the um, embodiment of God's wrath. Like, how are they so evil, so wicked, so vile, that the Lord has to go and destroy them versus everybody else? Like, what is happening? It's a good question. I'm so glad you guys asked that. You guys are really smart. So, um, there's a few things. Well, the, the biggest thing that I want us to see before I go into this little tangent, because I'm going to go on a tangent, by the way, um, is that ultimately, Sodom and Gomorrah have failed to rest, to trust, to seek after, to know the Lord. That's really the biggest indictment. And from that, a whole host of other sins have, ca- has, have caused. This is a place that is categorically known. They are notorious for their wickedness. Meaning that the rest of the world is like, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah is a rough place. Like, that's a place where things are rough. Now, this is where the tangent goes. So, um, one of the things that we see in chapter 19 is that there's prominent homosexuality taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now, a number of evangelicals, preachers, pastors, leaders have taken this and been like, this is the, the pedestal for pronouncing the evils of homosexuality. That Sodom and Gomorrah were completely and totally obliterated because of the gays, is basically what they're saying. And that's not true. That's not true at all, because there's a whole host of sins. We actually see throughout the whole rest of Scripture, from Ezekiel to the New Testament, that there were a number of sins that caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Spoiler alert. And so what, what we see is it's not, it's not just the, home, the sin of homosexuality, but what a disservice has happened is it's raised homosexuality almost to this unforgivable sin that somehow... If you are a part of the LGBTQ community, there's no hope for you. God doesn't love you, and he's just waiting to destroy you. That is so false. That is a lie. And that is not what happens here. Now, we do know that the Bible does speak against homosexuality. I'm not here to minimize sin, but I'm also making sure that we are elevating it to a position it never holds. So we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful how we interact with that. The Bible is clear that marriage is between a man and a woman, and anything in addition or subtraction of that is a distortion. Homosexuality, adultery, infidelity, premarital sex, marital sex with someone else when you're married, all of it. It's a distortion. Homosexuality is one of. So this isn't the primary sin. It's not, God doesn't hate gay people just in the same way that he doesn't hate you and me because we are sinful. To say that this one sin is greater is to say that somehow you're better and you're not. Neither am I. So I just want to be careful with that because as I was reading, some were saying, see, the Lord is just destroying homosexuals. And I was like, no, that's so, that's a disservice to the truth of the gospel. You don't find that anywhere else in scripture. The Lord has come to defeat sin. Okay, so now that we've gone on that tangent, I just felt like we need to do it. So what we see is happening, if, if that's not the paramount sin, but what we do see that's happening is that there is significant sexual abuse taking place. That foreigners who walk into the city are assaulted. That they don't welcome the foreigner, they don't bring them in with hospitality, but instead they mistreat them, they hurt them, and they abuse them physically and sexually. That not only that, there is murder and theft. There's significant heinous crimes that I really don't need to go into detail. You don't need to understand the full weight of everything to know that it's bad. This is a wicked place where the virtues of, of just common morality are absent. We see that it's a place that is just compounded and compounded with when you throw the Lord out, everything else is just open air for, for sin to take place. And it has. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see that the Lord has pronounced judgment. We've seen what the judgment, why the judgment exists because 
Um, Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole plain, it's actually a plain of five cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are just the two largest cities. Um, so we see that the judgment is pronounced that Sodom and Gomorrah is truly sinful, but we also see something about the Lord here, that the Lord doesn't tolerate sin. We see that the Lord in his character, Abraham is learning something about God. One, that his holiness is intolerant of sin. It's interesting because a lot of times, especially in our culture, we, we praise tolerance, tolerance for the sake of tolerance. But what we see is that the Lord is actually significantly and completely and totally intolerant of sin. Because sin is the very thing that destroys his creation. It's the very thing that destroys or attacks his glory. And for God to be holy, set apart, means that he does not tolerate, he does not have a place for sin. Abraham is learning the holiness of God. He's also learning the justice of God, that there is brokenness, mistreatment, there is abuse, there is wrong that happens, and the the Lord God is just. He will bring about justice. Sin is not going to be rampant. Satan is not more powerful or equal with God, but that God is the Lord of all, and he will bring about justice and peace. The Hebrew word shalom, a total peace. He is just. But then this is the hard thing that Abraham is learning. God is a God of wrath. He not only pronounces judgment, he enacts judgment. He doesn't just declare that you are worthy of judgment. He is also the enforcer of that proclamation. See, what's hard is a lot of times we like to focus on the blessings of God. We have to go, God, you're loving and gracious and merciful. Yes, absolutely, completely true. It is not wrong to focus on those things. God is total and perfect love. God is total and complete mercy. His mercy is new every morning. He is abounding in steadfast love and grace. This is our God, and we praise him for that. But he's also a God of justice and wrath. And without the wrath of God, we wouldn't get the love of God. Without the justice of God, we couldn't experience the mercy of God. For God to be good, he has to be just. For God to be good, He has to defeat sin, his wrath. But wrath is something that we are a little afraid to talk about because it might scare you away from the Lord. Oh man, I I don't really like this divine judge you're talking about. I I want like a loving, like teddy bear hug God. I want like a big belly laugh God. I want a God who I could like sit and chill with. But this God seems terrifying, seems scary, seems fierce, and he is. But he also is loving and good and merciful. So that's why we're dealing with this, and this is exactly what Abraham is wrestling with. So now that we've seen that the Lord is the divine judge, now we're going to look at this imperfect advocate, this processing that Abraham has. Now that he's experiencing this side of God that he hasn't seen before, because we, we know through Abraham's life he's seen forgiveness and grace and mercy for his wrongdoings, but now he's seeing wrath and judgment and hostility. And he has to process this for the first time. And the way that he does is very similar to us. So let's take a look at it. We're going to be looking at verse 22. It says, The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people, righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare it for the space, spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
will not the judge of all the earth do right? Then the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, true humility here, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? And the Lord said, if I find 45 people there, I will not destroy it. And on and on from 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. It's almost like we see Abraham bartering with God. Will you give me 50? How about 10? So what we see from this, this imperfect advocate, is we see Abraham in two different lights. One is a questioner, and one as an intercessor. He's interceding on behalf of the city. So first, let's look at the questioner, because this is where a lot of us, maybe if you don't believe in Jesus and you're here for whatever reason, whether you came with a friend or checked it out, driving by and saw Tri-Village Church and figured I'd check this out, um, maybe you don't believe the Bible or have an issue with the Bible, an issue with God. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you have these very questions that Abraham is asking. There are two key questions that he is asking the Lord, that he is going before the Lord, that he is uncomfortable with. The first one is, are you really going to destroy the wicked and the righteous together? Will you kill innocent people? Maybe to put it in our modern context, why do bad things happen to good people? God, are you good? It's a big question. I, I hear what you're going to do, but why? Why would you destroy innocent with wicked? It's a big question. Second question we see is, will the judge of all the earth do right? God, at the end of the day, which is more important to you, justice or mercy? Because it doesn't seem like the both can live in tandem. Does your mercy get overshadowed by your justice and we just get the scraps? God, are you good? This is a scary side of you I've never seen before, and I don't know how to handle it. But what the Lord is doing is he's teaching Abraham about himself. He's teaching Abraham about who Abraham is. You see, for the very first time in Abraham's written life, he cares about someone other than a guy named Abraham. Abraham, for the first time, is thinking outward. For the first time, he's caring about someone else. Now, we understand that Lot lives in Sodom. And if you don't know who Lot is, Lot is the nephew of Abraham. So he has family in Sodom and Gomorrah. He has family there. So this destruction is personal. But Abraham never pleads for Lot. He pleads for the city. And so we see that, we're, that Abraham is learning that the Lord loves all people, not just the people that you love intimately. So he's showing Abraham, the Lord is showing Abraham his heart, his care, his concern, his empathy, his desire for all people. And so for the first time, this servant is thinking outside of himself and for someone else. And maybe he's even thinking, well, you know, Lot knows who you are. We've walked from, we, we left our, our homeland for you. We went down to Egypt and experienced a really bad decision for you. And then we separated. Surely, surely Lot has told someone else that, that you are God and that you're in control. Surely Lot has, has told someone in Sodom that, that you are, are the God of the universe and that you're good and that there's got to be people there who are searching, who are hungry, who, who know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like, surely I'm, you're going to find 10 righteous people. You have to. You have to find 10 righteous people. So this questioner, Abraham, what does this show us for us? 
Well, first, I think it shows us that we get to go to the Lord with our concerns. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. What we get to see is that Abraham, not just, it's not just concerns for like the day-to-day life, but this is concerns about who God is. This isn't just, Lord, can you provide me with what I want or with what this person wants? It's, Lord, can you show me that you're good? Because I don't, I don't know if this proves that or not. Can you show me that your justice is just? God, are you good? You get to go to God with those concerns. He isn't afraid of your doubts. He isn't afraid of your questioning. He isn't afraid of you searching him out. In fact, he encourages it. You know what's happened with people who have searched the Lord out? There's a really famous man named C.S. Lewis who did not believe he was an atheist and he set out to prove that God was non-existent, that he was wrong, and in the process found God himself. And is now one of the most read Christian authors to this day. Another guy is a guy named Lee Strobel who sought to do the same thing. God has no problem with you searching him out. In fact, he encourages it. Go to him with your cares, your concerns, your doubts, your questions, your fears, your inhibitions, your indictments. Go to him because he cares for you. So we see, we see first that Abraham is a questioner. The second thing that we see is that Abraham is an intercessor. He's interceding on behalf of the city. He's not just calling out and praying for the righteous. He's also praying for the wicked. And so what we see here is this picture is as they're walking along, these two angels keep going by. These two men keep walking on to fulfill their mission. And Abraham stops and stands in the path of the Lord. And in the Hebrew text, it says that Abraham stopped in the path. And the Masoretic text actually says that the Lord stopped in the path of Abraham. The point here is really that it's showing that the Lord is patient. He wanted Abraham to process. He wanted Abraham to ask these questions. He wanted Abraham to plead out on behalf of someone else. And so what we see is that Abraham is saying, please spare this city. Please spare these people, these people that you've created, these people that you care about. He doesn't say, please just spare the innocent. The other thing that he doesn't do is he doesn't condone or or try to um, negate Sodom and Gomorrah's sinfulness. He doesn't say, God, they're probably not that bad. Like, you just probably don't understand. You don't understand like, the life that they grew up in, the, the context for where they grew up in. You just understand like, how hard it's been for them. They wouldn't sin if they knew you, but, but they don't, and so they did. And, and so just don't, please don't destroy them. Give them another chance. He never tries to pardon their sin. He knows and affirms, yeah, they are worthy of destruction. There is wicked and there are righteous. And he's saying, please, Lord, for the sake of those who are innocent, for the sake of those who are trying to follow you, Please, please, please spare the whole city. For us, we might go, wow, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I'm really, that's encouraging to, to see someone like Abraham being an intercessor. Like, go Abraham. But let me try to put it in an illustrate to a context that we might understand. So think about the city of Chicago, okay? City of Chicago, and let's say that there was a decree, a, a sentence that was written, and, and it was basically like, we are going to eradicate all of the crime in the city of Chicago. This has gotten out of hand. This is ridiculous. Chicago is categorically over and over and over again one of the most violent, crime-filled cities in the United States of America, and we're just going to put an end to it. We're going to stop. So what we are going to do is we're going to take all of the criminals, and they're going to they're they're pay. Now, we're, there will be no more crime in the city of Chicago, period. Any, any theft, murder, abuse, any, any crook, anyone who's a criminal is going to be dealt with. For the most part, you might be going, okay, yeah, great. Like, crime needs to be paid for. This is awesome. Because internally, we all have an inner longing for justice. We all want wrong to be made right. And we know that corruption, wickedness, sin, evil is not the way it's supposed to be. 
We have this longing for justice to take place. And so then you might go, okay, how are you, you might be skeptical and cynical, like how are you going to make sure that 100% of the crime is going to be taken care of? Like this seems like a futuristic iRobot thing. Like what are you going to do? It's like simple. We're just going to destroy the whole city. Everyone's going to die. Wait, what? Yeah, no, no, we're just... 100% success rate. Everyone's dying. All of the criminals. Like, it's, it's going to be fine. 100% of the criminals will die. Well, and everyone else. But the whole city is going to be taken care of. Do you want justice still? Do you like that plan? Does that sound good to you? Does that sound like the right idea? I know for me, my brother lives in the city. Some of my best friends live in the city. For me, it would be very, very personal. And like Abraham, I would be interceding on behalf of the city. Please, Lord, save all of them, not just the ones I care about. You see, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you believe that there is a place called heaven and there is a place called hell, and you believe that Jesus is coming back for his people and that there will be holy wrath brought upon sin once and for all, that Satan will be completely destroyed, amen, and that sin will be defeated, but that there will be people who reject the Lord and will experience the full weight of the wrath of God. It should stir our hearts to plea for them. Does it break your heart to know that people are going to hell? Does it grieve you to know that there are people who are going to experience the full weight of the wrath of God? Let that sit for a minute. This is what's happening here. Abraham is being exposed to the realities of the consequences of sin. And we are too. And it should stir in us a longing, a yearning, a pleading for those to be saved. For them to taste and see that the Lord is good. To understand his justice, his grace, and his mercy. This should stir in us like Abraham to become intercessors. We can question to God, but we also get to intercede on behalf of our friends, our families, our neighbors, the people around us. Because it should grieve us to know that the wrath of God is both very real and imminent. And this isn't meant to scare you into loving Jesus. Because we are going to talk about the love of God. But it's a very real reality, the wrath of God. So now that we have seen the divine judge. And we've seen this imperfect advocate yearning on behalf of these broken, sinful cities. Let's look at the justly condemned. In order to do that, we need to actually look at the very end. So to see what happens, and I kind of spoiled it for you already, in case you haven't heard this story or know this story. At the end of chapter 19, or towards the end of chapter 19, we see what actually happens. So Abraham has been pleading on behalf of the city, Lord, if you find any righteous people, basically is kind of what he's saying, 10 righteous people in all of these cities, please spare it. And the Lord promises to do so. If I find 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. God is not lying here. So this is what happens. By the t- starting in verse 23 of chapter 19, by the time that Lot reached Zor, one of the towns of the five in the plain of, of Sodom, so by the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and all the vegetation in the land. Skip to verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. 
the place where he was interceding. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So in this, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah is totally destroyed, and Lot and his family are totally saved. Well, except for his wife, but that's another sermon. And, um, and so we see in this moment that, well, which gave? Did, was God wrong? Did he not fulfill his promise? Or, wow, Sodom and Gomorrah must be really messed up. So what we see is actually the justice and mercy of God coming together. That mercy isn't overshadowed by his justice, but also that mercy doesn't overshadow his justice. What we see is that God shows mercy to Lot and his family, even though they don't deserve it. And he also shows holy justice on sin. So in this moment, Abraham doesn't quite get what he prayed. He gets what he prayed for, but doesn't get what he prayed for. He gets the safety of his family, but not the salvation of the city, which is a hard reality. The justice and mercy of God in full force. It's a really, really difficult thing. Man, because a lot of times from this, we kind of look like God is just a trigger-happy maniac, right? Just waiting to like zap you with lightning bolts. Um, but there's something I want us, before we, before we continue on, there's something I want us to learn about God, this misconception that we have about who God is and his purpose for us. Because it can seem like God is just waiting to just strike smoldering fire on you. It's like just kind of watching. Go ahead, sin. I dare you. I dare you gone. Like, it's not what's happening. So what we see is actually, we get to see the heart of the Lord in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, what's happening is Israel has been sinning and sinning and sinning. Sound familiar? And they end up going into exile to this nation, Babylon, which is actually listed in scripture as being worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of wild to think about. It's a more wicked city, but they end up going into exile there. And while they're in exile, this prophet Ezekiel is writing the words of the Lord as he's communicating to, to Ezekiel, and then Ezekiel is communicating them to Israel. So in Ezekiel chapter 18, we see this picture of who God is, and it'll be on the screen so that way you guys don't have to turn there because Ezekiel is in the middle of the Bible. Um, we're actually going to look at Ezekiel chapter 18 starting in verse 25. Um, on there, I think there's 23, but starting in verse 25. And so the question you might ask, is God just? That's the very question that's asked here. Does God just want to destroy people? Is that his thing? Like he just gets really excited about burning cities down? This is what we get to see. So yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here, you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is not your ways that are unjust? For if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin that they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness that they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses that they've committed and turned away from them, that person will surely live, that they will not die. Yet the Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. And this is where really we need to hone in. Repent. Turn away from your offenses. This sin, that, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all your offenses that you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, 
declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And yes, the Lord grieved over them too. The Lord does not delight in the death of anyone, but seeks repentance and life. So it brings us to understand that there was no one righteous in all of Sodom and Gomorrah. No one. And you might even be thinking, man, if I was alive back then, I'd bring like this whole row of people and we would go and then the Lord couldn't like destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because we're good people. Like we just bring this, well, let's bring TVC to Sodom and Gomorrah and then it'll be fine. The Lord wouldn't have had to destroy it. It would have been so great. I, God, I could have solved this problem. Just bring the righteous people in. The problem is if you got there, then the Lord would definitely have to destroy it. Some of you didn't get that. By you being there, it needs to be destroyed because you and I are wicked because we're sinful. And we see that all throughout Scripture. We actually see it in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you'd put that on the screen. For whoever keeps the whole law, you're like, I'm good, I got this, I'm keeping the Scriptures, but stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. So if I lied, yeah. If I like angrily cut off that dude, yeah. I responded poorly to my spouse, my children, or my friends, yeah. When I was five, when I smacked my brother upside the head, yeah, then too. Guilty of breaking all of it. You see, the Lord isn't categorizing the world amongst good people and bad people. There is no good people. It's just bad people. We are all wicked in Romans, it actually, uh, the, Paul in the book of Romans quotes back to the book of Psalms and said that there's no one righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. What that means is that the right action, the hard work and toil that we have committed has earned us. We have, we have gotten what we have worked for, which is death. Sodom and Gomorrah. What they have worked, what they have toiled, what they have labored for is their own destruction. And guys, we are no different. We are just as guilty. We stand worthy of the wrath of God. So we're left with this. Can I trust in the plans of the Lord? Does God destroy the innocent and the wicked? And maybe your perspective has been changed. Maybe you're like, wow, now I see there is no unrighteous. So does the Lord destroy the righteous and the wicked? You might answer, no. He just destroys the wicked. Actually, you're wrong. Does God destroy the innocent and the wicked? Does God destroy the innocent? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. He does destroy the innocent, but just once. You see, this story, as much as about Sodom and Gomorrah, is all about Jesus. Jesus was the truly innocent who didn't die with the wicked, but died for the wicked. This story is all about Jesus who stood in the gap for us, who experienced the full weight of the wrath of God. He experienced Sodom and Gomorrah so that we could experience the blessings of Abraham. He experienced the full weight of destruction so that we could experience the full realities of life. You see that Jesus was the good teacher who is instructing his children in the ways of righteousness, in the ways of justice. 
What's interesting is that the first body of believers after Christ dies and ascended is called the way, the way of the Lord that he has taught them to walk in. And when he leaves, he gives them a commandment, make disciples of every nation, teaching them everything I have commanded you. Sound familiar? He is the good teacher. He is the good shepherd who saves his sheep. His sheep know his voice and he knows them. He is also the perfect advocate who is interceding on our behalf. You see, Abraham was pleading on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, please don't destroy it. Jesus stood on behalf of a wicked world and said, destroy me instead. Jesus is the perfect payment for the wrath of God. In him we find true hope. In him we find true healing. In him we find true life. That the wrath that we deserve fell totally and completely on his shoulders. So can I trust in the plans of God? Yes, because I know that his plans are for me and for my prosperity in him. But there are still those who turn away. There are still those who reject, who still say, God, I got this figured out. I'd rather bring on your wrath. I don't think it's coming. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. The wrath of God is a very real thing. So is the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to leave us with this. In Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, we get this picture of what, it, of what it looks like to be in Christ Jesus. And so it says, in starting in verse 31, What then shall we say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he will, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, whom God has known? Is it not God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He is our perfect advocate. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present or in the future, nor any powers, um, nor height or death, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, who bore our wrath. Does this change you? You see, the plans that God has for you might be uncertain. The things in your life might be hard, difficult, painful, very real. But we know the ultimate plan that he has for us. Plan for hope, for future, for restoration, for forgiveness, for grace. You see, the love of God is a beautiful thing because of the wrath of God. We cannot have one without the other. We trust and we worship and we praise in a God who is both loving and just, a God of wrath and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that you have shown Abraham who you are, and through that we get to see who you are. That God, the great displays, the terrifying displays of your wrath and your justice fell full and squarely on your son Jesus so that we could experience the realities and totality of your love and mercy. Lord, let us live as changed and transformed people. 
Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who for the first time is now realizing the, the extent, the magnitude of your love and the extent and magnitude of their sinfulness, Lord, that they would come and fall before you as the Lord and King. Lord, that we would worship you as one body, your church, because of your great and magnificent love that you have lavished upon us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.